episode is brought to you by a controversial comedian who shall remain nameless, Louis C.K., and his legendary quote, If you think about something more than three times a week, you should write about it. Welcome to the Stefan Dyer Podcast, my people. Hello, my people. Como están, damas y caballeros? Welcome to the Stefan Dyer Podcast, where I welcome people with remarkable stories for amazingly vulnerable conversations. I am Stefan Dyer, former banker turned comedian and lifestyle entrepreneur. And this episode with Drew Tarvin was a masterclass, a masterclass on humor. A former engineer by profession, Drew calls himself a humor engineer in that he's teaching people how to get better results while having more fun. He is the CEO of Humor That Works, a leadership development company that teaches professionals how to use humor to achieve better business results. He has partnered with top organizations, including IBM, the UN, the FBI, yes, you heard well, the FBI, and the NASA to solve human challenges with humor solutions. A best-selling author, Andrew has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, The Fast Company, and was named a visionary under 40 by Procter & Gamble Alumni Network. His TEDx talk on the skill of humor, titled The Skill of Humor, you can find it on the show notes, has been, has been viewed more than 10 million times, only half of which were his mother. <laughs> He loves chocolate and tweeting puns. Yeah, you should follow Drew on all social media, at Drew Tarvin, because he has the most amazing puns ever. And on that note, if you like this episode, follow us, tag us, share the episode, especially on your Instagram stories, and tag us, at Stefan Dyer and at Drew Tarvin. Let's get this popping. He's a humor engineer. He's a CEO. He's a pun master. He's also a dad. Enjoy this episode with Drew Tarvin. Like I know you will in three, two, one. Go. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Stefan Dyer podcast. I have here the unbreakable, the unmistakable, the highly capable Drew Tarvin, the humor engineer, one of my favorite people in the industry. How are you, Drew? I am doing well, man. How can you not smile with a great <laughs> introduction like that? Which I have to like un unbreakable. I'm a frail person. I feel like I could break an unmistakable. I don't know. People tell me I have a couple of celebrity doppelgangers. So I feel like I might be mistaken for other people. But uh, everything else that you said is true. But I love that. I, I felt like I was getting ready to walk into either a boxing or wrestling ring. <laughs> Like that was the like level of intro. I feel, man, I feel really excited about this. I'm happy for the people who are watching the video because on Spotify, you can now watch the video on Apple, Apple podcast videos. I mean, mm -hmm. on Spotify uh, podcast video and on YouTube, mm -hmm. who are your doppelgangers? Who are your celebrity lookalikes? They're also uh, going to see your picture in the flyer too. Yeah. So if you see the picture. Some people tell me uh, skinny Hugh Jackman. <laughs> Uh, and they always emphasize skinny. It's never like you look like a, a buff, muscular Hugh Jackman. They look like a you're like 
you look like a, a Hugh Jackman that hasn't eaten enough. Um, very frail. Um, I get um, more recently. I've getting um, tennis star uh, Daniel Medvedev. Yes, uh, he was number one uh, ranked uh, tennis player for a little while, etc. Got People really like, angry the other day. Broke a, bu- a couple of brackets. <laughs> People texted me when he won the whatever open he won, uh, I think last year. People were like, congratulations on the tennis win. I didn't know you played. Uh, So he looked like. But my favorite, though, is uh, uh, a year or two ago, a good friend of mine told me I kind of look like U.S. soccer star Megan (laughs) Rapinoe. Which... Is an incredible compliment. I mean, if you think about it, because she is a, a world champion and an outspoken leader, I'm like, yes, I'm on board with that. So, so those are the, the three. The T when she celebrates her goals, you know, right? Exactly, it. just the like little yeah. T um, things. Yeah, oh, <laughs> it's amazing. So that's so even for the people who are only uh, listening to this as the audio, that's imagine a skinny Hugh Jackman plus Daniel Medvedev plus Megan Rapino, and and you get me. Oh my god, that's so good! I heard on your on your TEDx talk that you also got Justin Timberlake, but I did from what part of your body? From only only from here to here, just <laughs> just the eyeballs. <laughs> uh, and this is this is the amazing thing because right, you know, is is one of the questions that people often ask of a humorist or of a comedian is like, where do you get your material? And it's like these are just the things that happened to me, right? This is just like someone coming up to me and just telling me that. And what's interesting, and I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit later, but part of that is because I found it's really fun where me mentioning I kind of look like skinny Hugh Jackman, it would cause other people to come up and be like, ah, but I think you look like Neil Patrick Harris, or I think you look like Justin Timberlake, but only from here to here. (laughs) So it's a weird thing of like, by you creating a little bit of humor, people create it back for you. And then it it develops these stories that you can share over and over and over again. Yeah, let's get into it. Because you're one of the most brilliant people that that I've ever met when it comes to humor. And, and many other things, obviously, but mainly, mainly humor. We, we, I had the pleasure and honor to be with you in two Toastmasters International panels. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, we were with the 1995 world champion of public speaking, Mark Brown. We, we were with uh, Veronica Dangerfield. Mm-hmm. We shared a couple of other stages. And every time you got to talk, I'm like, dude, I want to be friends with Drew so bad because <laughs> Because sometimes we'll get into it, but there's different types of of funny and Mm -hmm. there's people who are naturally funny or funny in like social environments. And my family doesn't think I'm funny. Like I don't, nobody, nobody that met me growing up, they're like, oh, this guy's going to be a comedian. Not even Mm -hmm. close. I was the guy who got kicked out of class because he was laughing too much or celebrating other people's jokes. But I was Mm -hmm. never the guy who, Nobody guessed I was going to be on on stage telling jokes. And from your TED talk, I I heard that growing up, you weren't the guy in class that everybody was going to be like, oh, this guy's going to be a comedian or he's going to perform in like four continents. What what do you think it is where what's the difference between people who are born Mm -hmm. and people who get to learn the skill of humor? taking from the title of your TED talk, because a lot of people get discouraged and they're like, I wasn't born funny. I can't do this. Can we talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. I mean, and to your point, I would say, you know, I'll take it a step further. And even what I said in the, uh, the TEDx talk, isn't that people were like, 
they weren't acting like, you know, I don't think he's going to do comedy. They were skeptical when I told them that I did do comedy. Yeah. Right. Like it wasn't like, oh, that was like, I didn't see that coming. It was like, I don't believe you do comedy, <laughs> what? but you're not funny. Yeah. Like, no, it's like, I have to show them like, no, I have a video now. And like, I have this video of the skill of humor it has over 11 million views. They're like, ah, I don't know. I'm going to have to, <laughs> I'm going to have to watch. I'm going to have to see. Um, but what is it interesting is I don't think I'm not entirely sure anyone is born funny. Yeah. Like I, I think people learn funny. And I think a lot of people who are quote unquote, naturally funny, just learned it growing up through osmosis. Like for a majority of those people, it was either that they had someone in their family who was a really good storyteller or yeah. a really good comedian. And they just kind of picked up it through it kind of like by, Hey, that's how they interact. I do the same thing. Or it was almost the opposite. There are some comedians that were like, I came from a very stern family and no one was funny and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, they learned it because their outlet was listening to comedy records or watching, you know, stand up comedians on TV or watching SNL, et cetera. So I think it's, I think it's oftentimes a, a thing that's learned through exposure. And that's who we think of as a quote unquote, naturally funny. Cause even my, my daughter is eight months old right now and she is starting to develop her sense of humor. And I think all kids have a kind of a sense of playfulness of yeah. they're going to find certain things funny, or they're going to laugh at things, or they're going to see stuff. And, and so I don't think it was ever like, nope, your genetic code said you're going to be a funny person and you're not. It's just, it's just the environment in which you grow up, which means, which is good because that means that if you didn't naturally already learn that skill somehow, you can proactively or intentionally learn it or even refine it. Now, that's the other thing that we see is, is some of the people that we work with are like, oh, this is great. I didn't know that I could be funny. So it's fantastic to learn that I can. Other people who kind of experience some of our work are like, oh, now I know why I'm funny. Yeah. Right. They like, I used to be, I can make people laugh, but I didn't understand why I can never do it intentionally. Now I have a better understanding of why people are laughing and I can decide whether or not I want that. Yeah, when when I we have three levels in our comedy school, we have like a class that's called public speaking through comedy. And level one is basically overcoming the fear and doing yep. your first five minutes of stand up on the seventh week. So it's like six weeks of class. Yeah. And on the seventh week, they do a grad show. Yep. It's like eight people per class. And the level two is learning how to be an MC, learning how to crowd work and learning the 15 tools of comedy. And level three is turning tragedy into comedy, mm. like just digging like deep, deep. I know that comedy, yep. a lot of people say it's tragedy plus time or there's other ways to see it, uh, truth and pain. But in level three, like we have a lot of exercises where people actually cry <laughs> and, <laughs> and we try to we try to we try to make them suffer. Now, we, we right. try to <laughs> just really teach them that you can. It's not what you say. It's how you say it in many ways. And you can turn. Mm tragedy into laughter so as long as you're ready to talk about it because yeah. you don't want to talk too soon and, and be crying on right. <laughs> crying and terrible but talking but about um just talking about about your point the type of funny and people mm -hmm. understanding oh that's why i'm funny some people use self-deprecating humor some people use like different tools like comparison exaggeration a lot of people mm -hmm. use uh physical humor so mm -hmm. when they're able to identify it, they can replicate it again, exactly. you know, because sometimes you don't even know what you're doing. So it's hard to do it again. What, what have you seen that people do more and more that they like to 
do over and over again and they really enjoy? What type of humor have you seen in people? Well, I think a couple of things of what you said there is one that tragedy, finding the comedy in tragedy is a really powerful skill. It's one of, you know, we talk, the reason why I get into yeah. comedy and get excited about it is because I'm an engineer by background and it's like, oh no, humor has benefits. It's not like, oh, take, you know, your course, your stand-up course in three-week things so that you can do stand-up comedy. That's part of the goal, but do it so you have also these life skills. Yeah. And one of the things that we talk about kind of in our program is, yeah, absolutely. Comedy equals tragedy plus time is what people say. But what's interesting is that, you know, I'm a math guy. So that means there's a corollary to that. And that means that tragedy, if you can kind of extract the comedy out of it, it makes it feel like more time has elapsed, right? This is why sometimes people say comedy is like therapy and the sense of like, if you can find the humor in a difficult situation, you're saying that it doesn't control you anymore. You're yes. laughing in the face of adversity. And so I would say it's a valuable skill that you're, you're teaching people resilience by teaching them how to find the humor in something tragic, which is, I think, an incredibly powerful skill. And I think you're right in the sense of capability. Like in, in the TEDx talk, I also share this, this idea that reflection on the past leads to action in the future. And so one of the skill set of a comedian, one of the things that they do very well is they go back and they like listen to the recordings of like, how did yeah. that show go? What worked and what didn't work? And naturally, we're going to do the things that we're rewarded by. This is exactly the same that's true with a child in terms of like, oh, they did something nice and you gave them a piece of candy. They're going to do that thing again, right? That positive reward or the same thing in the workplace. The, the things that people are recognized for, they do more of. Well, in comedy, it's very simple. The thing that gets you a laugh is the thing that you're going to do more of. Yeah. And if you can find, if you can better identify why people are laughing, you're going to continue to do it. And so I think you, exactly to your point, it's different for every single person as to, to what's going to make people laugh. I know for me, the thing that tends to make people laugh is my kind of nerdy perspective on the world. Yeah. And whether it is talking about, you know, being a, a new dad or dating or learning a new, like I'm tempting to learn that, you know, Spanish as a new language or even doing yoga for the very first time. It's kind of like, what is that, that nerdy perspective? And I think that is what oftentimes we mean by persona on stage. Yeah. And our persona is developed by finding what do people laugh at? That's rewarding. I'm going to continue to do a little bit more of that with my own voice. And you develop who you become kind of in that, that, that moment, that persona. I think it's so important to get on stage and it doesn't have to be a formal stage. Mm -hmm. Like the stage can be anything. It could be a party. It can be with your friends and family. And a, a, a couple things happened to me when I was starting my career. And I want to get your insights because I know you've, you've performed in many countries as well. Is that I was trying lots of things. Mm -hmm. of things that I thought were funny. And a lot of these things weren't landing, so I wasn't getting laughs. My first two years were horrible, like just horrible. My business partner, Huang, was, is an extraordinary storyteller, comes from a family of storytellers and joke tellers. And I guess in, in Colombia, there's a, a tradition of street storytellers, which he also mm -hmm. did. And, and we started together. So it was like so frustrating for me to see him kill it. And me being like, guys, like, I'm funny. Just wait, wait a couple more years. <laughs> I'll get there, you know? And then I started reading books. I started taking workshops and that's how I really, because a lot of people just get up there 
telling something that they think is funny, but mm-hmm. the structure of it is not yeah. ideal. So it doesn't land. So what happened to me is in Spanish, I was getting a lot better because I started my career in Spanish, but then I started doing stand-up in English here. And I noticed that a lot of people here were doing one-liners and mm-hmm. shorter, less physical, less body language, less tonality. Not everybody, but in Spanish, I was more physical. I was more storytelling. I was, And then I was like, well, I guess in Toronto in English, people are doing one-liners. So I was like, well, if that's what they're doing, I'm going to do it. And I was like, just doing horrible on stage. And then I was like, after two years, I did a program at Second City. Mm-hmm. And I had a, I got a four month scholarship for a fellowship with, with, with other people, like persons of color. Yeah. And they, they taught, taught us in many ways how to find your own voice. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, I was like, screw this. I'm going to just talk about, like, I'm just going to be me on stage. Yeah. And it's like two, two things. Like I started with, what do I think they will find funny? Mm-hmm. And I started to compliment it with like, I'm going to be myself on stage and say what I think is funny in a good structure. And as I complimented those, I started doing a lot better. What do you yeah. think we can do, not just as comedians, but as people that public speak at work or at parties mm-hmm. to not say the things that we think they like, but to have mm-hmm our more authentic voice whenever we perform or talk. Well, it's, it's a, I think it's a common thing that people go through, right? Cause you go to open mics or you even see someone in a meeting or whatever, and you see them getting laughs. And a lot of times, even if people start like, I'm going to do my own thing, you start that way, but you don't have the, the skill set yet. You don't have the craft, right? Because I think there is an art and science to humor and, and, sure. you know, for programs like what you do or what we do, you can teach the science piece of it. You can say, this is what a setup and punchline is. And this is what a comparison is or a comic trip or, you know, kind of these structural things, but the art part of it is, is owned by you, right. As the individual person. And so if, if you have a good program, like your program, you're giving people the space to discover that art, to practice it and, and go through it. But at early stages, you don't have that craft capability. And so you go and maybe people don't laugh. And then you see the person go up after you do a bunch of one-liners and they get laughs because they have the craft piece of it. And you're like, oh, I must have to do one-liners in order to do it. And it's like, no, that's just, you know, you, it takes a little bit of time. So I think it's a very natural thing to start to do it. And I think it's an okay thing to do as well because it means you're going to try different styles yeah. that maybe you aren't used to. But I remember doing a stand-up show, one of my early ones, one of my first times like doing a professional gig, like as the, the host, because in the US, very commonly, it is kind of three acts, right? You have the opener, you have the feature, and then you have the headliner. And I remember like, like my second or third time being the, um, the host, I was talking with the headliner afterwards, a guy named Big Joe Starr, and was just at, picking his brain about comedy, right? As a student of comedy, I was asking him a little bit about it. And, um, I was just asking about this idea of like, you know, how do I talk? Cause I'm a, I'm a nerd. All of my material is very clean. So even when I was doing the, you know, Friday late show at 10 PM, I didn't curse. I didn't talk about sex. I didn't do all these things. And I was like, I don't want to talk about, I was talking to the comedian. I was like, I don't want to talk about these things. And I want to talk about math or I want to talk about communication or being a nerd or whatever. And he just looked me in the eye and he's like, so what is stopping you? And I was like, well, that's the audience is in the lab. It's like, he's like, no, literally what is stopping you from writing it? Like when you sit down to write material, 
is someone holding a gun to your head saying you have to write about blue material and talk about sex on stage. And I was like, no, he's like, you are choosing to do this. You are choosing to spend your weekends to come and talk on a stage to strangers. Why would you talk about anything else other than what you were actually passionate about? And it was just this kind of reminder that was like, if we're going to do the work, and this absolutely applies in some of the trainings that, because we do our, most of our focus is humor in the workplace. It's the same at work. If you're going to spend your career, if you're going to trade your hours of life for a paycheck, why wouldn't you insert some of the things that you want to do? Why would you assume that it has to be the other way? And I think a big part of the how of that becomes a couple of things. One, the conscious choice to say that, because I think you went through a conscious choice probably at some point that you're like, this one-liner stuff isn't working either. No, let me go back to the stuff that I care about. So the conscious choice to say, no, I'm going to be a little bit selfish when it comes to the types of things that I talk about, selfish in a good way. And then two, saying, okay, let me work on the craft. If I were really good at this, right? If you think about really good comedians or really good humorists, they're probably able to take almost any subject and make it funny. So that means that the subject itself isn't that it's not funny and can never get laughs. It just means that your craft doesn't match the topic you want to talk about, which means you just need to get better at the craft. And then the third thing is finding the safe space to practice it because humor is one of it's one of the rare things that you can't practice entirely on your own. Like you can read all the books that you want. You can write a ton of material, but you can't actually practice or know if it's funny until you get it out to the world. Yeah. And so you have to find the spaces that you can make a couple of mistakes and say, okay, I can learn from that. And now I can refine it. Yeah, man, that's so true. And I remember when we had that talk at Toastmasters, one of the things that you can do is you can work off stage by having a little mm-hmm. notebook. And yep. if you say something at work or at a, over coffee or at a party and somebody laughs, just go to the bathroom and write it down, you know? <laughs> yeah. Or you can take it, out your notebook in front of everybody and be like, guys, can you give me yeah, just one second? This was which, a- which if you do that, it, it's a pro and a con to do that because I'll sometimes do that. The nice thing is that you can do it on your phone so you can just text yourself if you want to be yeah. like, oh, I just need to send a quick text so that people don't. But for, some of my friends started noticing what I was doing and now they would either... Like if I started to write something down, like my wife does this all the time. If I stop and do it, like take a note, she'll be like, what are you writing? What's so funny? She'll, she'll like start to look around and be like, okay, you looked at that sign and then wrote something down. So what is funny about that sign? What could it be? And it's like, no, it's just a random thought that I had. Um, yeah. Other people will be like, why aren't you writing that down? I just said something that was funny. You should, you can use that. <laughs> yeah. Use that in your little, your little standup thing if you want. Yeah. Like you, you'll hear that sometimes, but you're exactly right. That that writing in and, and a really important point that you made earlier is that, you know, as Shakespeare said, all the world is a stage. And so when we talk about, quote unquote, stage time, a very safe space to do it is in a comedy class like with you or on an open mic stage or in an improv class. Those are really safe spaces to do it because people know that. But you can also just tweet stuff out. I use Twitter as a thing to say like, okay, which one-liners and puns actually resonate with people? Or you could, like you said, you can use a conversation or if you have a good buddy of yours and you're sharing, you know, sharing jokes back and forth, you can use it then. So it doesn't have to be a, a stage stage, um, but that practice and repetition is absolutely key. Yeah, I think it's so important. I've been wanting to talk to somebody about this for so long and I'm happy it's here. I, I feel because I ha- we have a comedy. This is a this is a term that a lot of comedians use that you already know, obviously. But for the people who are listening, there's a concept called like comedy, uh, comedy buddies 
So basically, me, Juan, and Gustavo, we get together every Tuesday on Zoom and we share jokes. Mm-hmm. And like, dude, from one to five, I don't care if like you're not going to hurt my feelings. Just from one to five, mm-hmm. five being like this survives, one just delete it. <laughs> What's the grade? And then more, another one, another mm-hmm. one, another one. So we're just trying to get volume so that we can find the diamonds. Mm-hmm. And, and just discard the things that are not working. But the more I've done this for years on this thing, I started to realize that sometimes the first draft or, or the first or the joke, they don't like it. Or the feedback that I get mm-hmm. is feedback of how they would say it. Yeah. And sometimes they're like, no, nah, this is not good. Or I would say like this, but I trust in my joke. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I go and deliver it. And because it's my joke and it's my delivery and not, it doesn't work always, obviously, but like yeah. I trust in it, it works for me. But if they yeah. would say it, it wouldn't work for them and vice versa. Like there's things that I would never be able to pull off that Juan or Gustavo say, but I think there's a piece of being like authentic and trusting your material and take other people's feedback but just you have to go try like at least give it yeah. some some life has that happened to you in the past where you're like uh a lot of people don't like this but i feel like i could tweak it a little bit and it could survive and and, and stand the test of time yeah i think yeah certainly when we were first starting out my my foray into to comedy was at the ohio state university where i was getting a degree in computer science and engineering so again, not the funny career. I was not going into performance. I was not a theater major, et cetera. Like I did my, I was like on the track to, to work a job in IT for my entire career. And that's what I started doing after I graduated. I was working at Procter & Gamble as an IT project manager. But at PNG or at, at, at Ohio State, my best friend wanted to start an improv comedy group, needed people, forced me to join. I did. It helped me to come out of my shell. It gave me a lot more confidence. And I wasn't very good, but right that practice and repetition, I got better because I was like the least funny person as part of the group. I was mostly there for project management. <laughs> I was mostly there to like make sure that we had, they're like, you're an engineer. You're going to make sure that we actually practice and, uh, you know, this go- show goes out on time and all that. So, um, but anyway, we, after a year of doing improv, completely self-taught, we were just kind of watching whose line is it anyway and repeating what we saw. Wow. Uh, there is an open mic competition at Ohio State. And we're like, a few of us were like, well, we, we, you know, do, we make people laugh when we make it up off the top of our head. So it's got to be easier when we write it down first, right? First of all, it turns out it's way harder, I think. <laughs> I think stand-up is a lot harder than improv in many ways. But the disadvantage, this is answering your question in a roundabout way, is that we would then get together as a group of like six people and then do a set, get some feedback. And then like a few days later, we'd come back and do that same set. And the problem with that was it was good to get repetition, but we're always seeking laughter as a comedian. And part of laughter is a surprise. And that's why most of the times you're not going to go back and watch the same set over and over and over again. There's a couple of bits. Like I could, I could watch, uh, Eddie Izzard's take on the Death Star Canteen probably every single day of my life and still enjoy it, right? There's certain bits that you're going to watch, but for the most part, people are, they laugh when they're surprised, not because they know the punchline is coming. And so we would do this and we've started, like I, we would start writing material for each other. So inside jokes would get a laugh or, yeah. you know, saying a punchline that maybe wasn't as good as the initial punchline, but was just different. 
would cause them to laugh because they're expecting something else. And so I think there's absolutely a balance between with say like a comedy buddy or even a comedy group is knowing, I think it's really good for, let me just get a practice rep with you. Let me deliver it as if I was going to deliver it on stage and just see what the initial reaction is. And less so of, I guess when I do it with people, I do it less so of like, is that a good joke? And more of, is there something there? Like not necessarily the structure, but what are your tags? Like if I start talking about, um, I'm, I've been recently building out more and more material around like yoga because it's one of the first dates that my wife and I had and we've got it like, there's a good story and stuff there, but uh, like the poses of yoga yeah, are what's like really throwing me off. Like, um, and so joking a little bit, like it's all animal poses. It seems like, I, I think the yoga, per- the person naming yoga poses just was at the zoo that day. <laughs> and they're like, oh yeah, that's a downward facing dog. And there's a cobra over there. Um, yeah. and then like, I'm playing now with like, I didn't know in yoga that you're not supposed to do the sounds of the animals. <laughs> like when you do cat cow pose, apparently it's frowned upon. If you go moo, meow, moo, meow. <laughs> so like, it, that's what I think is funny. And so with the comedy buddy, I'd be like, okay, let me share some of my thoughts now, see if there's laughter or smile. And then more so, how would you tag that? Or what else should I explore? And so, you know, comedy buddy might say, Oh, we'll talk about the yoga instructors, how they they're like, some of them are like want to be, you know, motivational speakers or talk about how the poses are way harder than you expect them to be. Right. Like you tell people tell you that yoga is just stretching. And then it's like the hardest thing you can do on your body or whatever. Like, so it's like that to me is how I'd use a comedy buddy as opposed to, is this the perfect formulation of this joke? I love it, man. Cause sometimes if it's like, if it's, is this funny? It's like a yes or no answer, but is there something here? it kind of taps into another part of the brain. So I love that. And I really want to just double down on what we're talking about, the authenticity and really talking about math or talking about reggaeton that I wanted to talk about. I'm like, ah, not a lot of people are talking about it or talking about, I don't know, TV shows or my wife or about being a dad. I'm like, yeah, I hope a lot, not, not a, I hope not a lot of people are talking about your wife. Like, <laughs> Man, this entire we got an entire club full of material talking about Stefan's wife. It's like that seems weird. That's a little weird. Yeah. yeah. So if anybody, if everybody can, so the, the thing that I that Mark Brown said in our panel, I think, or 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 on the episode on my podcast, is that it's so important to be you and find mm-hmm. the things that make you unique and different. Because otherwise, I always think about long term. Like uh, I studied math, I studied finance too. So I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm always like N. And towards infinity, how is yeah. this going to play out? You know, I'm always thinking about what's my ROI. So if any anybody can talk about that, if mm-hmm. anybody can talk about sex and your point of view is not different, then anybody could deliver your speech. Anybody mm-hmm. could deliver your set. But you want to get to the point where even if you get the words to my set, you wouldn't be able mm-hmm. to do it the way that I do it or Nobody can be better at being Drew Tarvin than Drew Tarvin. Like Naval on a podcast, he says, escape competition through authenticity. And that's like my, my life right. motto. You know, I just want to be the only person that can be Stefan Dyer on stage. But it takes time to, de- to, to develop that, you know. So I, I really love that. It does. I think the I mean, the other thing that I would say about that, though, is in the long run, it makes it easier 
right? Like if you can, if you have a, if you can do the reflection process to start to understand what is your persona, your take on something, it makes comedy a little bit easier. Cause to that point of like, how do you make a subject like reggaeton? If not about a lot of people are listening to it funnier, how do you make a subject like math funny? And what I realized is that part of it is making it funny enough that people are either laughing at the like really cleverly structured joke that requires that you remember, you know, 10th grade algebra, or they're laughing at how you deliver it and your perspective yeah. on it. Right. So if I'm talking like in the, in the TEDx talk, when I do math pickup lines, part of the audience is laughing because they remember, you know, what these actual terms mean. And a majority of the audience is laughing that I attempted to use math pickup lines that like it was like it was just the the character of the persona and so it makes it easier for the audience to resonate with what you're doing and it makes to your point it easier in some ways to write it and make it unique like even observational humor like there's a lot of things that Jerry Seinfeld talks about that you're like well anyone could see that or notice it but it's his opinion yeah it's his take or his emotion in that thing that makes it uniquely him versus someone else and the more you do it, the more you start to develop this like um, reputation mm-hmm. of being that guy. So then people come and see you for that thing. But if right. you are just, and I mean, I'm not trying to throw a shade at anybody who ta- just talks about sex and 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 moms or mm-hmm. like being Ray. Like a lot of Latin comedians talk about moms like hitting them with like the flip flop mm-hmm. or. Or like um, sex or erections or, or, or I don't yeah. know. But, and I really felt bad because at the beginning, I, I didn't, it, it, because in, in Toronto, we started doing t- uh, comedy in Spanish and there would be people from Uruguay, Argentina, Costa Rica, Panama, Mexico, Guatemala, Peru, Venezuela, Colombia. Like you had to find something that mm-hmm. everybody had experienced. That, that in many ways could be relatable. And especially if, I, if it was like my first year, I was trying to talk about these things and I was just like sucking, like so bad. But I want to, before we talk about humor in the workplace, I want to talk about humor personas because a lot of people get discouraged about not being the Jim Carrey type of funny. Mm-hmm. And not everybody has to be Jim Carrey. You know, not everybody has to do physical humor or do crazy faces or mm-hmm. brain vomitings, what's your type of humor is the most important thing. So I know on your website, on your program, you have a test to find out your humor type or your humor persona. And can mm-hmm. you just define humor persona for people who don't really know what it's all about? Certainly. So the this, was, this came out of uh, an experience that I had in Morocco. Uh, my brother and I were both presenting on the same, um, at the same conference. And, uh, I speak on humor in the workplace. My brother speaks on the rhetoric of humor, uh, how oh. humor like, M- M- uh, leads to influence and persuasion. And people are like, how, what happened in your family that you're both yeah. talking about humor? And, uh, it's mostly my fault because when my brother, my brother went to LSU to get his PhD in communication and rhetoric, et cetera. And then I would go down and guest teach his classes like once a semester. And he would teach public speaking, intercultural communication and leadership and conflict resolution and all that. And I would teach improv or stand-up exercises to his class to achieve those things. Hey, here's improv exercises to help you to be a better public speaker. Here's how you could use humor as a way to diffuse conflict, et cetera. 
And at the end of the semester, his course evaluations would almost always talk about the one class that I was there at. They would say things of like, oh, your and Drew's class was really fun. Or, I really enjoyed the improv exercises or the humor was so great or your brother's really funny. And it annoyed <laughs> my brother. It annoyed him completely because he's like, this doesn't make it. He's like, I was here for an entire semester. Yeah. Right? I did multiple classes with them. I had office hours. I gave extra credit. I did all of these things. And the one thing they remember is your class. And of course, I mean, he's my brother. So he was like, it can't be you. It, it can't just be that you're like, they liked you a lot. It must be the techniques. It must be the improv and stand-up. And so I taught him some improv and stand-up exercises and he started to incorporate them into his class and his course evaluation scores went up. His like the feedback was about, hey, this was like this actually I don't have a fear of public speaking anymore. I feel a lot more comfortable, et cetera. So he started to like, no, there's actual benefit to this. So he did it from a, his rhetorician side. He started to research it. So that's all the backdrop of we're speaking in Morocco. Afterwards, a woman came up to us and she's like, I find it so fascinating that you are related and we're like, why is that? And first of all, we look very different. You already know that I look kind of like Megan Rapinoe. Well, my brother looks kind of like um, Jonathan Den Ness from Queer Eye uh, or <laughs> Fabio, if you remember him from the old like yes. kind of like romance uh, cover uh, book covers or whatever. But he has like long hair, glass, et cetera. Look very, very different. He's taller than me. Say, he looks like Megan Rapinoe's brother. <laughs> yeah, he looks like Megan <laughs> Rapinoe's brother. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, and... Uh, but we're like, I don't think that was it. And she's like, no, your sense of humor is so different. She turned to my brother and she's like, your humor is very conversational. It's very warm. And then she turned to me and she's like, and your humor is more cold. <laughs> and it's like, I think what she meant was that my brother is very, he is one of those people who is quote unquote, naturally funny. He is someone who just like, he tells a story and he's able to make people laugh. And he doesn't necessarily know why they're going to laugh, but he knows that they will laugh. Whereas I am someone who is very intentional about my humor. It's very set up in punchline and it's very specific of like, I'm going to use humor in this moment because I want you to listen to this story. I'm going to use humor in this moment because I want you to understand this point better or whatever. Like I'm, I'm very much an engineer when it comes to that humor. So that got us to explore and research this idea of like, okay, if humor is a skill and it can be learned, then the question isn't, are you funny? The question is, what kind of funny are you or what kind of funny do you want to be, right? If it's a skill that you can learn, then you can kind of adapt. And so that's the that's the premise behind the, the humor personas. It's a little bit different than the comedy persona of like, who are you exactly on yeah. stage? But more of how do you express, how do you most naturally or most frequently express your humor out into the world? That's brilliant, man. And I think as multidimensional humans... Mm -hmm. We could also take hope and, and encouragement from knowing like, hey, I don't have to be a loud person on stage. Maybe I could be a different. I used to feel very guilty at the beginning mm -hmm. and, and, and uncomfortable when my family or my friends would come see me in my first year because I'd be like thinking, are they going to think that I'm being fake or disingenuous on mm -hmm. stage? Because I don't talk on stage the same way I'm talking to you. Mm -hmm. or, or to my wife or to my friends right. over coffee, you know? So then no, I don't know who told me about this, but I, they said, think of you as a pie mm -hmm. and cut a very thin slice from that pie. And that's you on stage. 
and it just mm-hmm. gets magnified on stage. It doesn't mean you're being fake on stage. It doesn't mean that because you talk mm-hmm. differently on stage than you talk to your coworkers at work that you're being fake on stage. It's it's actually you on stage. It's just that that mm-hmm. 1% of you gets magnified on stage and it's okay. And, and that really helped Absolutely. me because I felt like, yeah, we are multifacetic, uh, m- multidimensional people, lots mm-hmm. of layers. And you don't, it doesn't mean that I'm being fake. Kind of gave me permission to be someone else on stage. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, it's context switching. Um, there's a fantastic speaker uh, based out of Australia, a guy named Phil Nosworthy, who I learned the idea of modalities from. And he would talk about like, he's a speaker. He's like, it would be very weird for me to be the exact same person or same energy level as I am when I'm speaking in front of a thousand people if I'm sitting one-on-one with my grandmother. Yeah. Like, it can be very weird to be kind of in performance mode, just as it would be very weird if I was you know, the poker version of me when I'm with my buddies, if I was, you know, sitting in a church or whatever it happens to be, right? (laughs) And so humans, we naturally context switch anyway. And this is what we mean by, this is why we call them personas, not personality, humor personality types is because they can and should change. And so there are seven kind of primary personas that we see, and all of them are valid at different times, right? So one of the first ones that we talk about is the idea of the enthusiast, And the enthusiast as a persona is someone who really finds joy or appreciation, humor out of everything in life. It sounds similar to you kind of growing up. You said in in class, you're the kid that was laughing at everything, right? That's an enthusiast, right? Even if it's a bad joke, you're like going to laugh about it. You're smiling. You're just enjoying, you know, everyday life. An enthusiast is a great persona to be at times. Like when when you're talking, I want to be an enthusiast. Or if I'm sitting in a comedy club audience, I don't want to be the entertainer and thinking about like, oh, this is all what, this is what he should have said. And like, I never wanted to be one of those comedians. I don't know if you've gotten to the stage or not, but there's, there's comedians a lot of times that will sit in the back of the room and they've lost almost the ability to laugh. Yeah. Or they, if something is funny, they won't laugh. They'll just be like, oh, that's funny. Or, yeah. Oh, that was good. I, yeah. Okay. That was a good, that was a good tag or that was good. It's like, no, I, I, I want to still be in, I still want to find joy yeah. in comedy, not just the, the craft of it all the time. And so that's just one persona that is appropriate, which other times maybe you do want to be the quote unquote entertainer or the curator or the skeptic at times, right? So like context switching or switching these different personas, depending on who you're with or what you are trying to achieve, I think is really, really important. Man, I love it. And, and yeah, I, I have to really focus at comedy clubs or when I watch stand up to not be the analytical guy. Oh, mm-hmm. that was, oh no, that was a good comparison. Oh no, that was a yep. good tag. Oh no, that was a good ex- uh, ex- exaggeration. Oh no, no, no. I just, I'm like, can I just be a guy? <laughs> can I just right. enjoy yeah. this for once? Mm-hmm. And then my, oh, that was a good premise. Oh, maybe I could do a similar premise. Exactly. That reminds me of a thing that I wrote seven years ago, but never did on stage. Maybe I should bring that back. Or idea. I did it and it sucked, but now I'm better. So I can do it again. <laughs> right, exactly. Now I can go back and do it. <laughs> Dude, you're, I, I can't stop thinking about your take at these Toastmasters panels on humor in the workplace. And mm-hmm. I wanted to save the, the best for last because mm-hmm. obviously you've made a career out of it. You're very successful. Mm-hmm. You have uh, a brand humor that works. Mm-hmm. And can you talk about people who say it's impossible for me to include humor at work because I'm going to get in trouble mm-hmm. or I'm going to talk about something and I, how am I, no- I going to know 
if the mm-hmm. the other person is going to get offended because I'm from Ireland and mm-hmm. they're from India or I'm from India and they're from Mexico or mm-hmm. I'm Canadian and they're Russian. Yeah. So I've grown with different values and different contexts, different idiosyncrasias, as we say in Spanish. Mm-hmm. How can I make sure that humor is appropriate in the workplace? That's a great question. I have a quick, I have a quick bilingual question for you yeah. right now, based on what you just said. If you don't know the English word or pronunciation of something, do you just say, as we say in Spanish, like, did you know idiosyncrasies? But or it was a very smooth, smooth thing that you're like, uh, if you have certain, as we say in Spanish, idiosyncrasies, like you said it in I, Spanish. You know what? Is that a technique I was gonna that you say, can use? I was going to say idiosyncrasies, but I didn't know yeah. if it was a word. So I just okay. say idiosyncrasia. Is there a word? It, it, yeah, idiosyncrasies is exactly a word, but it was that was so smooth. That was so like, as we say in Spanish, and then it sounded wonderful. I just, I'm trying to learn, I'm starting to learn Spanish. So I'm trying to, I, I've never been bilingual before. I'm still not, right? I'm not well, at that stage. Well, but I'm a, learning if that's a nice little trick that I can use. If I forget the word for something in Spanish, can I say, well, as we say in English? Yeah, you could. Like growing up learning English and coming, moving to Canada, I got up, in, like I got in so much trouble, not in like, like, bad trouble but in in terms of getting lost in translation which is actually a lot about what my comedy is about mm-hmm. i had a student the other day in class and you know in spanish you say de repente mm-hmm. which means like suddenly yeah but he's from ecuador he's he just got to canada and he's like well i was on the subway and de repente someone came to me <laughs> <laughs> and you just start using words in spanish and english so i'm just trying to avoid <laughs> Avoid making up words. And try to sound smart on my own podcast. I know, but it, I mean, it is. A, but that's, I think, the beauty of it. And learning a language, I think, learning humor in some ways is kind of like learning a new language. Yeah. And in fact, I think it's probably easier than learning a new language. But part of it is a structure thing. Like I'm learning in Spanish, so like, you know, when using things like, uh, I'm going to give that to him in English. It's like, give that to him. Like in Spanish, all that comes first. It's like that him. No, it's him that give. Right. <laughs> and it's like, oh, that's structure. Like, I don't understand. So Just as in lo-doy. comedy, there is so a structure. Lo-doy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's there's well, certainly you know, a structure. I don't know if you're doing this already, but dude, you would kill in Spanish because first of all, everybody's going to love you right off the bat. You always talk about your audience. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of truth and a lot of pain in being an immigrant mm-hmm. and in learning a new language. So already you have people in your favor because they're like, oh, and yeah. the the setup in many ways, which is what I do in my comedy, is the setup is the the the, the context, the believable part, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily like you don't exaggerate too much in the setup. Yep. It has to be believable. So it's what everybody knows how you say it in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And then the punch is how you said it. Because I, yeah. I have a bit, for example, of a, of a lady that I worked with at Scotiabank. She was telling us in Spanish, because everybody at Scotiabank is, is Latino in Canada here. Mm-hmm. And and then she was saying very proud because her son Ernesto had just got accepted into Yale University. Mm-hmm. She was telling all of us. And then the VP came in and, and he was Canadian. He's like, hey, Maria, can you translate? Like, what's going on here? Everybody's yeah. like smiling here. And she's like, Oh my God, Mister, is me. I so proud of my son Ernesto because he's in jail. 
<laughs> and, then, and then he's like, oh, my God, in jail. She's like, yes, for 40 years. He's like, oh, my God, is he okay? I ah, so hard to make him friends in jail. So mm-hmm. so everybody knows, like, the setup is everybody knows how to say it, which yep. is Yale. Mm-hmm. But then the punch is, like, getting lost in translation. It's like, jail. So you mm-hmm. do the opposite, and everybody knows how to say things in Spanish. Yeah. And you say it in a different way because you're learning the language. So there's a huge potential there, I believe. Yeah, I've been I that's certainly a lot of what's going into the humor notebook is this idea of like learning a new language or certain phrases and the, you know, the the awkwardness of it. And for sure. And that that's what I mean of like. As a skill set, of as, as we kind of come back a little bit to this idea of humor in the workplace or the value of humor, we'll say outside of just performing it on a comedy club stage is I don't know if you experience this, but a lot of times as comedians, one of the beautiful things about having an outlet of comedy is that I know anytime something embarrassing happens to me, it's like in the moment, like in the back of your head, you're like, this is terrible. I, do, I wish this wasn't happening. But in the back of your head, you're like, this is going to make for an amazing story later. Yeah. This is going to be so funny on stage. Like, I'm going to find the, I'm going to mine the humor for this thing. Like, absolutely. So yeah. um, it is a, a source of that material. And, and I think that is, to me, what is so valuable about thinking about humor as a skill and also thinking about it as a little bit more broad than comedy. So when we, if we're talking about humor in the workplace, one of the things that I'm very clear at uh, kind of establishing with the clients that we're working with, because we work with quote unquote, serious groups. People are often surprised. Like we've done work with NASA, with the FBI, with the United Nations, the Red Cross, with big organizations like Microsoft and IBM. And people are like, but I don't think of any of those places as funny. Or as their culture, it's not like we're saying, oh, yeah, we're going in and talking to Southwest. People are like, okay, that makes sense. They're supposed to have a lot of fun. It's like, no, we're going into the really serious places. Then. And it's because humor is this really valuable skill in a lot of different contexts. But when we talk about humor, we're not talking about comedy club level funny necessarily. That's why we call it humor, not comedy, is because humor is a little bit more broad. Humor does involve comedy, but it might also be something that just is a little bit different or something that makes you smile a little bit more. So that, I think, is an important distinction. I think the other component to answer specifically your question about what do you do or say to the people that say, hey, my workplace is too serious or I can't use humor at all. There's a couple of things, but the primary thing is that no one can control how you think. And no one can control what you do with your time at certain things. So at a minimum... You can still incorporate humor in your own work by either one being intentional to listen to a comedy podcast on your way home from work to be a little bit of that enthusiast to laugh a little bit more and to um, uh, relieve some of the stress that you had from the workday. Right. So that when you get home, you're more present for your family. So no one can stop you from listening to comedy as a way to relieve stress after the workday is done. Um, or you could be, as, a, as we think about the personas, one of the other personas is that of an engineer. And this is what I am. This is using humor to solve a problem. So you might think of like, oh, you know, going through emails is really boring for me. And I need to find a way to make it more exciting. Well, one of the things that I do is I'll start to read emails in a different accent in my head. <laughs> And so like, okay, what would it, okay, this is, this Stefan, what would it sound like if Stefan was actually Christopher Walken when he sent me this email? Or if it was, uh, you know, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger or yeah, whoever, right? Yeah. Like whoever these impressions are and it makes it more entertaining for myself. And here's the thing is it doesn't matter how strict your boss is. They cannot prevent you from doing that. 
your manager's not going to come up to you and be like, are you reading emails in an X in your head again? Stop it. Like maybe if you're saying it out loud, very loudly to everyone to hear, but like if you're doing it in your head, no one knows it's happening and no one can stop you. So I think a big part of it is a personal choice to say, no, I'm just going to make my own work a little bit more fun. Going back to that idea of what do you talk about on stage? Like if you're going to do the hard work of writing material, write about the things you care about. If you're going to do the hard work of showing up every day, every day at work and trading hours of your life for this job, you might as well make it a little bit more enjoyable. Now, certainly there are plenty of other techniques in terms of learning things like the audience, but that's a starting point is to say, even if it's the worst workplace in the world, it can't control how I think. Are there any topics that we should avoid at work just to be safe in in terms of not offending people Mm -hmm. of other cultures? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, that's a big fear that people have is like, what, what if my humor is inappropriate? And humor is typically inappropriate for one of three reasons. One, it has an inappropriate topic, right? Exactly like what you're talking about. And humor is not an excuse to then talk about something that you would not otherwise talk about in the workplace. You can't be like, I have this racist joke. And like, but you want to say a racist comment? It's like, no, but it's a really funny racist joke. It's like, no, it's still not appropriate. Uh, right. And it's it's not using humor in the, the, the role of a stand-up comedian on stage and you using humor in the workplace are very different roles. Some people would say, hey, maybe part of the role of a stand-up comedian is to be the last fashion of free speech, that they can toe the line. And that, you know, I, we were, I was on a, a different podcast recently with a bunch of comedians. They were talking about like, you know, Dave Chappelle says part of a comedian's job is to be a little bit reckless. Um, and it's like, okay, yeah, that might be true of a com- comedian. It's not true for how I do comedy, but maybe that's what you believe about it. But in the workplace, entirely different story. Your job is not to be an edgy comedian in the workplace. <laughs> yeah. It is to use humor to get better results, which means, yes, you avoid certain topics. And if you wouldn't talk about it, if it wasn't a joke, then you wouldn't talk, don't talk about it as a joke. The second reason why it might be inappropriate is that it could have an inappropriate target. So some humor that's a little bit more aggressive might have a target of someone else. Maybe it's the banter back and forth that you have, or maybe you're going to make fun of a customer or whatever. In comedy, we say generally don't punch down. Um, but in humor in the workplace, it's kind of like don't punch at all. Uh, in many ways, it's like there's plenty of other forms of humor that you can use that doesn't require a target of you making fun of someone. Uh, and then finally, the, the third reason why it's inappropriate is that it could come at an inappropriate time. Us saying that humor is a valuable skill in the workplace doesn't mean that it's always appropriate. Like if you, you know, often joke and say, like, if you just let go a bunch of people, it's not the time to bust out your like frozen musical parody and be like, I've got to let you go, let you go, not going to pay you back anymore. Like that's not the time for that type of humor. And that's terrible singing on my side. But those are the typical things of why it's usually inappropriate. The way that we think about it, like I call it the newspaper rule. I think a lot of people call it either the newspaper rule or you could call it like the woke Twitter rule and say, whatever you said in the workplace, would you be comfortable with it being published in a newspaper or blasted all over Twitter? And if you're like, ah, I don't know if I'd want my boss to see that impression that I just did of him, or I don't know if I'd want my mom to read about me saying this joke at work, then it means that it's probably not appropriate and not something that you should say. I read somewhere, I don't know if this was for humor, but very similar. Would you be comfortable saying your honor before it? Like your <laughs> I honor. I love that. All I did was this, this, and that. Yeah. All I did was say this joke that is, you know, prejudice against this group of people. It's like, no, you wouldn't want to, you want to do that. Stop that humor in general, but certainly in the workplace. You know, it always, 
it always really made me angry at at Scotiabank because I got some feedback where they were like, you make us laugh too much and you joke around too much. And a boss that was an incredible person, and he he told me, it's okay if you do it in in our team of six, mm-hmm. but try to not do it in front of executives because they're gonna mistakenly assume that you're just like oh living la vida loca joking mm-hmm. around and they're gonna think that you don't care about work. In mm-hmm. fact, I was really good at my work. I, I was one of the youngest senior managers at Scotia Bank before I quit mm-hmm. my job, and but a lot of people may miss interpret my my mm-hmm. smiling my laughing my joking around and everything with like oh this guy is just like coming here to joke around yeah could you do you have any feedback as to specific pockets of the day <laughs> of, of where to joke obviously not in in, in executive meetings maybe mm-hmm. or over coffee it's okay the water cooler moment it's okay over drinks with or over lunch with your colleagues um We've both been in the corporate world, so uh, this wasn't a, a scheduled question here, but uh, I, I just want to hear your, your take on this. Yeah. Are I mean, as an engineer. Or or good places to sprinkle some humor yeah. like something. <laughs> yeah, but like something there. Yeah. I just love. Actually, like, that's a good metaphor. Um, uh, in fact, uh, I'll sometimes talk about that is like humor is like the salt of a meal, right? Like you wouldn't have an entire meal of salt. Oh, right. Like it's only about sprinkling it on there. And uh, and I wish as an engineer, I wish I could give you a percentage. I wish I could say like eleven point seven percent of the time. <laughs> that's when it's appropriate. Like that's how much like if you look at your work and how much you're like, I wish there was a percentage, but it, it doesn't exist. I think there's a couple of guidelines, though, that do help because um, I would I would even push back or challenge a little bit. Can you never use humor with executives? I don't think you could. You would say never. Do you use less of it with executives? Maybe depending on their their style or their sense of humor. But if you're going into a meeting that's hour long and you've got to present some, you know, either research that you found or a new project or initiative, there's probably going to be value in adding a story or adding yeah. a comparison in there. Maybe it's not as funny for as often, but a little bit of humor might go a really long way. And so, I challenge the notion that it's like, oh, there's everyone has a sense of humor. Right. I've yeah. not yet met a human that does not have a sense of humor. People like to laugh, but what makes them laugh is very different. It might be different based on culture or it might be different based on their perception of what's appropriate in the workplace or not. And that's somewhat some people have told me, especially it's slightly more older generation. You know, I, I did an event once and someone was like, you know, what? work is supposed to feel like work. <laughs> you know, if, if if work was supposed to be fun, they would call it play. And I'm like, that doesn't. I'm showing I'm dedicating so much of my life to this. And maybe that made sense back in the Industrial Revolution when you yeah. only worked 40 hours a week and you could not bring your home, your work home with you. Yeah. Like if you're stamping plates in a, at a factory, you weren't bringing part of the machinery home and doing work. But yeah, now where work life balance is like integrated and you sometimes do emails or whatever at night. And now that we, we have so many people in the knowledge economy where it's like, no, our mood impacts our ability to work. Yeah. Therefore, would any, anything that can help us to better manage that mood, probably helpful for the workplace of something humor can do. And so the way that we train it is that it all goes to what we call the humor map, 
And this is what, as the persona as an engineer, because each persona has kind of a, a tool or a thing that they they can use to leverage, right? So um, for the inventor, it's a writer's notebook and exercises. For the entertainer, it is a stage and getting out there and performing. For the curator, it is collecting things that make them laugh and then sharing them with other people. Like each persona has something. For the engineer, it's what we call the humor map. And the map is your medium, your audience, and your purpose. And so in the workplace, when you want to use humor, Rather than just like, I'm going to do it so people think that I'm funny, think about like, okay, what are my, what are these three things? What's the medium? Like, is it in an in-person meeting that I'm going to say this, or is it in an email or is it in a phone call? Uh, Who is the audience, right? Because the amount of humor that I use with an executive is probably going to be a lot less, but not necessarily zero, but less than what I would use with my direct team. Yeah. And then finally, what is the purpose? And that last one's really, really key for getting those better results. Because sometimes we use humor like, oh, I just want people to like me or I want to make people laugh just so like, you know, because I'm the comedian, I like it on stage, et cetera. But if the purpose is very clear of like, no, I'm using humor with my team right now so that we become a little bit closer together. And then I'm going to use a different kind of humor when I'm in that meeting with the executives. But the purpose of that humor isn't going to be so I'm buddy, buddy with them, but it's going to be so that they understand this concept that I'm talking about. And then I'm going to use humor for myself to relieve some stress after a long day at work. Like the the type of humor is going to change. And that intentionality, uh, or as we say in Spanish, intentionality, I don't know. Uh, I was going to try, but I didn't know the word. Um, uh, that, That intentionality goes a long way in making sure that the humor is appropriate and seen as appropriate by other people. The last kind of very kind of technical tip that I'll um, help, and I learned this from a a speaker named Vin Jang, who is a a magician, fantastic magician turned incredible corporate speaker. He said the magic phrase for almost any type of thing, whether it's magic or humor or a story that you tell in the workplace is, the reason I told you that is because. So in the workplace, if you want to introduce and start something with like kind of a really funny story to get people to pay attention, then you finish that story with, and the reason I told you that story is because it's actually the same problem that we are facing in today's work. Or in the TEDx talk that I do, I don't say yeah. this exact language, but it's essentially the reason I told you that funny story about my grandmother is that I all believe that if we thought WTF like my grandmother, if we thought that it meant, wow, that's fun, then the world would be a better place, right? So that connecting phrase or that basically like, here's why I use humor. It's actually for a good reason can go a long way in smoothing over the use of humor at work. Oh, that's beautiful. So it's not, so it is, the reason I told you that is because blank, you have to fill in mm-hmm. the blank to justify it. And it, it mm-hmm. kind of makes sense in people's minds. Yeah. Would you and say- sometimes you justify it, not all the time. If you're meeting someone for the first time and you use a little bit of humor, you don't go. And oh, by the way, the reason I told you that joke is so that you like me more as a better human being. And maybe you buy something like you don't necessarily <laughs> do it then. Um, but if people are a little bit skeptical or they're not sure why you use humor, yeah. it might be valuable. <laughs> Would you say that self-deprecating humor is a really good way, safe way to practice humor in the workplace? Because you're not the victim of the, the victim of the joke is you mm. in many ways in standup. Sometimes if I know I'm going to crowd work and, and, and bugle a couple people, not humiliate them because I don't do that, but, um, I bug myself first. So mm-hmm. they're like, Oh, this guy's kind of cool. Like he's like. He's down to have fun. He's bugging himself. He's making fun of himself. Uh, lookalikes mm-hmm. at work. Sometimes if you if you messed up or if you got stuck in a meeting or if you stuttered a little bit or if you do things that you think could be funny for others and you do self-deprecating humor, 
Is that a safe way to start a little bit? It absolutely can be with a couple of caveats. So self-deprecating humor is a fantastic form of humor in a couple of situations. One, when you're in a higher status position. So, right, as a comedian, that's really key to use because it's like, hey, I'm going to poke fun of myself. And now if I banter with you in the audience, then we know that I'm not a mean person. This is just all in good fun because I you know, made yeah. fun of myself. Same thing as a leader. Using self-defeating humor, self-deprecating humor is very valuable because you say, I don't take myself too seriously. Despite the fact that I have executive in my title or something like that, I'm saying that this is, you know, I'm still a human at the end of the day. Yeah. So when in high status position, I think it's important. When the self-defeating humor isn't in the thing that you're supposed to be good at for your job, <laughs> like you don't, you don't want, like if I, if I was going to have surgery, I don't want the surgeon to come in and be like, you know what? I'm just so bad at taking <laughs> appendixes out. Like, I know I'm about to take your appendix out, but I'm just terrible. I, I don't even know why they give me a job like yeah. that. It's going to be freaking me out. But if I go in for surgery and the, the person is like, hey, I'm sorry, I'm not very good at decor. I'm a, I'm a surgeon. I'm good at this thing. But like, that's the reason why it's this, you know, hanging cat poster because I, I don't have good, you know, art taste or whatever like that. OK, I'm, I'm on board with. So as long as the self-deprecating humor isn't about the thing you're supposed to be good at uh, or your job or that you're getting paid for. And the last key <laughs> is that it's not used too often, because if you only do self deprecating humor, unless you're Rodney Dangerfield, who made an entire career out of it, like I get no respect for the most part in the workplace, if you use it too frequently, or it's the only kind of humor you use, people will sometimes start to worry about you. They'll be like, am I, am I allowed to laugh? Or is this person have self-esteem issues? And this is actually a really important point when we get into the use of humor from different, uh, between men and women, because the person saying a joke or using humor has an impact on how it's received, right? We know this from comedy, right? Like the thing, the topics that Chris Rock can talk about are very different than some of the topics that I can talk about, just as the topics that you can talk about are very different than what Ali Wong might talk about. And so the person saying it has an impact. And in one study, they found that when men use humor in the workplace, they were met with a positive response around 80% of the time, a positive response being a laugh or a smile, or at least an acknowledgement of the humor. And this is only in one study, but kind of still informative. When women use humor in the workplace, they were met with a positive response only 20% of the time. So that's a massive gap. A lot of times it was almost just kind of completely ignored. In that same study, they found that 90% of the humor that men used was off-the-cuff conversational-style humor, things that just kind of happened to come up in the moment. 70% of the humor that women used was self-deprecating humor. And so then that comes back into play, the challenges that we talked about before. If, one, if it's the only type of humor that you use, people will stop laughing because they feel like, oh, I don't know if I can laugh at that because maybe you actually feel that way. Uh, So I don't know if it's actually self-deprecating humor. And then two, the status thing, because of there's absolutely in a lot of workplaces, gender bias, and that's a separate issue that we have to resolve and get to gender equality, et cetera. But if gender bias does already exist and status is already perceived to be lower in for whatever reason, then to use self-deprecating humor is only going to lower that status a little bit more. And so that, again, that's not fixing everything when it comes to men and women using humor in the workplace. There's a lot that uh, like we have to work on for gender equality, but that may be one component of it. Man, that's so good. That's so those distinctions are are beautiful because they are big caveats. Do you feel that sometimes because I saw it in the workplace a lot and I see it with my students. Sometimes you have such a serious person 
mm-hmm. that says a brilliant line, a brilliant punch, but because their body language and their face and their tonality are so serious, unless you you've made a career of like deadpan, but nobody knows this about you because mm-hmm. you've been so you're like you're 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 a lawyer downtown with a bunch of lawyers downtown in the workplace. You drop a brilliant line. But because your body didn't change and it's so stiff and it's so serious and your 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 face, nobody feels like they have permission to laugh. Mm-hmm. What I do is sometimes I smile as I'm saying it, or I mm-hmm. relax, or my body's moving around, or my tonality changes a little bit to say, "Hey guys, you got you can laugh." Mm-hmm. Can can people do this for people listening to this? Like, yeah, I'm too serious sometimes. Like. I'm, uh, I have a bit of sarcasm or irony and, and, and people don't get me. What can we do physically or tonality wise? Or should we give like a disclaimer? Like, hey, guys, I'm going to I'm just going to try a little joke, a couple of jokes here. You, you, you can laugh because sometimes you need to tell people that they have permission mm-hmm. to to laugh. What can we do? What can those people do to get more laughs? Yeah, the performance of of something is really, really key when it comes to because you have a brilliant idea. I mean, if it's not performed well, if it's in a bad structure or whatever, people may not laugh. Or like you said, they may not know that they're allowed to or can laugh or that they're, you know, that what you said is a joke. And I had a manager like this. One of one of, it was one of those managers that it was like I had it was a he was a fantastic manager that I appreciated after he was no longer my manager. <laughs> yeah. Like while he was my manager, I didn't like him as a manager because he got a lot out of me. He made, he pushed me much more than I thought was possible and all that kind of stuff. And he had this dry sense of humor where you couldn't tell if he was joking or serious. And so yeah. if on Friday he would come up and say something like, ah, oh, we just had this big project come in and I'm going to need you to work over the weekend uh, to get it done before Monday meeting at 10. Sometimes that was real. And sometimes that was his joke. <laughs> But the way he delivered it was exactly the same. Yeah. And so it's like we would like it would just be a long pause and then it would kind of be like, wait, are you serious? And then you just like start to be able to slowly figure it out. So I think a small like the delivery piece of like adding a smile to it is probably one of the easiest things to do is say it with a little bit of a smile or even say it as a smile afterwards. Um, like you said, change the physicality a little bit, relax a little bit more, kind of get a little bit more expressive when it comes to kind of delivering the punchline. Um and I don't know how much I would, I don't know if I would often preface things with like, I'm going to tell you a joke now. Um, although maybe that's kind of the style and it becomes really funny, but I would potentially say if people don't laugh afterwards, like, you know, I'm just kidding. Uh, you don't actually have to work. Uh, like I would maybe then do it there, but there is something about learning the delivery of it. And a lot of times when, you know, people know that timing is really important, right? When it yeah. comes to, 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 um, to delivering humor, and the timing is in two areas. For some people, the timing that they need to work on is between the setup and punchline. By adding just a little bit of a pause, you kind of almost telegraph a little bit like, hey, a punchline is coming. Whereas, yeah. it, cause if you're like, hey, I'm gonna need you to work this weekend, ha ha ha, that's really funny. Like you don't know, it's like, hey, you know, uh, Drew, I've got really bad news for you. I know it's a really important weekend for you, but you're gonna have to work this weekend. And then you smile afterwards and it's like, oh, okay. I, I, there's a little bit of a rhythm yeah. that that's probably a joke because there's that little bit of a pause before the punchline. And then for other people, the pause has to come after the punchline so that they don't so, step on their laughter. Right. So and that, I'm sure you talk about that. Very, very good. That, that pause after the punchline is key because also 
leaving the word that triggers the laugh at the end of the sentence, at the mm-hmm. end of the punch, because otherwise you're going to say it at the middle of the sentence and people are going to start laughing at the middle of the sentence, but you still got a few words to go. So mm-hmm. what tends to happen is people are going to go, ah, oh, no, you still talking. <laughs> and then they're going to stop laughing in the middle of the sentence, which is not what you want. Yeah, because they don't then spontaneously, after you finish that sentence, go back to laughing. <laughs> they're like, wait, 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 ha, 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 delayed. Like, no, yeah. that doesn't happen. Exactly. Drew, we're coming towards the end of this. I have mm-hmm. rapid fire questions and then the Great. last question of the podcast, which everybody sure. gets. Okay, here we go. If you can respond quickly, or as yep. we say in Spanish, rápidamente, <laughs> you can do it. If you have to take a couple of seconds, that's fine too. Okay. Okay. I lose track of time when I... Uh, am with my daughter. What makes, what have you done in the past three months that makes you feel proud? Um, raise my daughter. There's going to be, I'll I'll try to give you an answer of both raise my daughter and, um, oh, I did an incredible event for NASA. That was one of my bucket list companies to do some work with an explosive event for NASA. I love it. (laughs) If you could invite three people over for dinner dead or alive, who would they, who would you invite? Ooh, um, maybe I'll go, uh, famous leaders who also had a great sense of humor. So I would go Obama, Churchill and Lincoln. Oh, I love it. Apart from your own books, what book have you recommended most to others? Recommended most, um, uh, the complete collection of Calvin and Hobbes of cartoons, a more business-focused book of The Red Thread by Tamsin Webster is phenomenal for kind of structuring ideas. And I am a huge fan of the kids' book Barnyard Dance by Sarah Boynton, Sandra Boynton. So there, there's one for each category. That's brilliant. What do you love the most about living in Panama? Um, the uh, beautiful outdoors, the ability to go outdoors and have wonderful weather pretty much anytime. Love it. What are two... Th- to three things that you've always wanted to do that are still on your bucket list still on my bucket list i want to go to antarctica and perform there so i can finally get all seven continents i'm at six um so i want to go to antarctica still on the bucket list um i would like to um visit bryce national park in utah and um i i maybe want to go bungee jumping i've been skydiving but i haven't been bungee jumping and i'm frail i'm afraid that the older i get the more frail my bones will get and they'll just pop out if i go to when i'm too old and now that you have a daughter you're like oh should i be doing these things uh, yeah i should have done those earlier yeah because when i have a two-year-old son so i'm thinking i'm like should i be doing this okay mm-hmm. if you had six months left to live how would you spend them Ooh. Uh, I mean, I think the nice thing is I would do mostly what I'm doing now. I think I don't think it would change. I would probably do a little bit more stand up and then also spend more time um, in more time with the family. Love it. And the last question that all the guests get. If we were to meet a year from now, 2023, with a bottle of champagne, mm-hmm. what are we celebrating in Drew Tarvin's life? Ooh, that's a fantastic question. Um, uh, first of all, we would have cake with said champagne because um, I'm a big fan of, of dessert. So we'd have cake and champagne to celebrate. That's a celebration that my wife and I have often. And uh, I think we would be celebrating um, the, uh, we'll say, um, uh, a, a 
humor special. I won't say comedy special, but a humor slash like speaking style special, either for a place like Amazon or Netflix or um, that kind of thing. But it's about that's basically kind of like a mix between a stand up special and like uh, a speaking keynote. But that's funny and uh, is going to leave people better off for listening to it. Oh, my God, you would be so good at that. That would be brilliant, because in many ways, your TEDx talk was a stand up set but a class as well, Mm -hmm. but a keynote as well. So it was like a triple threat experience. And like Mark Brown always says, don't give a speech, deliver an experience. And I think that's why people listen and remember you. And then the Mm -hmm. next morning they're like opening the fridge. You know, that Drew Tarman guy, like that was really funny about his grandma, WTF, you know, like those little nuggets. And, and uh, there's this guy, uh, he did the, the Latino, Special. He used to be um, in the Mario uh, Ma- Leguizamón, so, something like Leguizamón on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, let me just let me just Leguizamón. John Leguizamón. John. Leguizamón. Oh yeah, yeah. John Leguizamón has a Netflix special that is not is not a, a comedy special, and it's called Latino History for Morons. Mm-hmm. Have you watched it? I have because it, it's like him explaining Latino history because his son didn't like his son or daughter or someone like wasn't really learning that much. And he's like, well, let me like do a deep dive and now make it entertaining. So people actually understand this history. Yeah. Like, I feel like it's not a comedy special. It has like an educational component to it mm-hmm. and you still love it because it's different. So you escape competition for authenticity. It gets the laughs. It gets the learning component. A, lot of, a little bit like Hannah Gatsby's as well, yep. like Net, you know, I you would be so brilliant at that, man. That's the goal, yeah. So it'd be the equivalent of the the TEDx talk, but a, a sixty minute re, like next iteration of that thing. That's what I'll I'll be working on, and and yeah, uh, I like it. Let's a year from now, uh, hopefully, toast to that. Love it, man. Well, my friend, thank you for your time. I really admire you. It's so like good to talk to you about comedy and everything. I wish you. The best with your wife and your daughter. And I hope that we can collaborate again on on um, on another panel. Oh, and thank That's you for right. recommending me for that uh, Nepal keynote. It went really, really well. I really Absolutely. It. No, I'm excited. Maybe we'll do a Spanish event together so that you can cover the actual good Spanish and I can make people laugh at my horrible attempt at it. Uh, but no, this has been fantastic. Obvious, uh, huge uh huge amount of fun, you know, having a conversation with you and, and hopefully the, the people listening have some good takeaways as well. Love it, man. Thank you so much. Drew Tarvin and Stefan Dyer on the Stefan Dyer podcast. Chao, chao. Gracias por escuchar el Stefan Dyer podcast. Arrivederci, my people.